When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Stephen Fry's Seven Deadly Sins. Episode 4, Lust. Here we are. Lust. 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 You've been looking forward to this one for ages, of course you have. Pride and, and avarice are all very well, but they're too prone to being abstracted into, into dry generalities. Lust, lust, lust is, is particular. Lust is inside us. It, it churns and swirls and growls and howls in our deepest recesses. There appear to be more synonyms for it in our language than for most words. Lustful, lecherous, licentious, lascivious, libidious. Licorice, lewd, loose, lubricious, libertine. That's just those beginning with L. Must be something to do with lapping and licking lips. Uh, there's prurient, debauched, dissolute, wanton, fast, impure, unchaste, concupiscent, intemperate, dissipated, degenerate, sinful, depraved, crude, goatish, sensual, promiscuous, carnal, randy, horny, raunchy, pervy, naughty, nasty. Lust, lust shames us, it thrills us. It drives us, it, it defines us, it's wicked, it's personal, it's secret, it's private. But maybe it isn't going to be private for very much longer. In the old days, they had the rack to stretch you out to determine the truth of your wickedness. Although desperate confessions of blasphemous lusts might come screaming from you, the world knew in its heart that admissions of sin extracted under torture could hardly be relied upon. After the rack, as Oscar Wilde neatly noted, there came the press. Now secrets could be extracted by research, dogged pursuit, rifling through personal trash, long lenses, phone hacking, and the bribing of acquaintances. But the salacious gossip purveyed by journalists and paparazzi was hardly more to be relied upon than confessions wrenched from poor souls under threat of auto da fe. No, the armour of personal privacy was still hard to pierce and depravity hard to prove unless a person's inner lust was driven to outer actions that could be pointed at, photographed and shared. The lust inside an individual's head was still secret and hidden from the world. But now we are closer than we've ever been to a world without secrecy. You only have to leave your laptop open, having neglected to hide your web cache and browsing history, and 
Ouch! Mother, girlfriend, boyfriend, child, all might be able to see where your lust has taken you. It's, it's like that horrible scene in your dreams where you walk naked into a meeting or restaurant. Tweets and photos and other acts of social media indiscretion continue to force us all out into the open. As so many have discovered to their cost, social media messages never die, and one careless tweet can expose something deeply personal that may just humiliate or shame us into eternal flight from the world. Many people are unaware, even now, that the details of exactly who they follow on social media are open and readable, easily tracked by outsiders. Um, Minister, why do you follow at Asian Nymphet on Twitter? But that's nothing. We've all heard the alternately overeager or darkly pessimistic talk of the coming wave of AI, bio-augmentation and brain-machine interfacing. This coming revolution is commonly expressed as an existential threat to the workplace. In reality, we might consider the threat it poses to the play space and the inner recesses of ourselves. It won't be long. Really, it won't, before we all gleefully dive into technologies that will, for example, let us engage with and operate devices by thought alone. We won't be able to resist such a, such a thrilling future. But think how susceptible that will make us to having our brains hacked. I know it sounds scarily futuristic and an extreme scenario, unlikely outside science fiction, but a future in which our own brains go online and get plugged into the matrix is really not very far off. And if history teaches us anything, it is that whatever is online can always be hacked. For example, malevolent spirits, bad actors, brain hackers, cowboy or corporate may soon be able to unlock a very unholy grail indeed and be able to see the actual pictures in our heads or a rendered approximation of them. Imagine if someone could see the pictures that flash through your mind when you masturbate. We will never be able to hide the wicked thoughts inside us ever again. You doubt me. With fear and horror, you doubt me. But your wicked thoughts can already be tracked in your computer by someone who really knows how to follow the breadcrumbs you didn't know you were leaving. The trail of lustful drool, shall we call it. So it, it really isn't that great a step for them to track not the computer on your desk, but the one between your ears. Everyone will, will excitedly sign up to brain-machine interfacing technology because of the power and ease and fun and function it will bring. And rather than arrive with a fanfare and roll of drums, it will creep in incrementally, as all such technologies always do. Like Facebook and Google, it'll emerge as a fun, benevolent, young and vibrant service. Like them, it will be nominally free, funded by advertising, never evil, always on the side of the angels. And as with Facebook and Google, we won't even notice how pervasive and world-changing it all is until it's too late to retreat. The advertising algorithms those two giants have now 
can eavesdrop and survey you in truly creepy ways, as most of us are already beginning to be aware, or should be. Automated code bots read our preferences wherever we go. In the physical space, they track our phones in the real world. In cyberspace, they track our every move in the virtual one. The moment we consent to the excitements of brain-machine interfacing, and those excitements will be irresistible, as new technology always is, is the moment we submit to having our darkest, deepest thoughts read, recorded, and if we are maliciously hacked, transmitted for the world to see, or stored cruelly away for the purposes of blackmail and extortion. There is a, a credible way of tracing the history of technology as the history of the assault on the sanctity of our own thoughts. Ironic, isn't it, that it has taken us all these centuries to shake off the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresence of God peering into our minds, seeing our darkest secrets and judging us, only to invent omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent machines to take God's place and return us to the status of frightened medieval peasants quivering in the pews and crossing ourselves because we know that judgment and damnation are just around the corner if we aren't very, very careful. And how well we know the price of judgment and damnation. We already watch celebrities and politicians and others crash and fall, a new one almost every day. They are damned and cast into outer darkness because their thought crimes have broken the surface or on account of actions or the expression of ideas that are held to be blasphemous and heretical, according to our contemporary shibboleths and orthodoxies. And poof! They find themselves redacted from the world and from life and history. There's democracy for you. The Internet gives us, John and Jane Citizen, more knowledge and access to more goods and services than Nero, Napoleon or Frederick the Great could ever have imagined. And now it has given us some of that tyrannical power, too. Just as Roman emperors, despotic rulers, popes and dictators have always, with a swift downward jerk of the thumb, banished, excommunicated, executed and exiled poets, orators and thinkers who displeased them, so now we, with a swift click of the mouse, can banish, excommunicate, execute and exile those who vex us. The sins the blasphemies and heresies of the 15th century seem quaint and silly to us, but will the blasphemies and heresies of our own time appear any less absurd to future generations or outside observers? It's time to remind ourselves of the meaning of the word moral. Moral, mores, morality, the, the, these are not words that describe what is permanently eternal eternally good or bad, they describe what is thought to be good or bad at any given time. Morals are customs. They're not universal ethical standards that hold true at all times and in all places, if indeed there can be said to be any such standards. In George Washington's day, it was, for example, deeply shocking, immoral and wrong to have sexual relations with one of your own gender. Indeed, it called for capital punishment. But it was not immoral or wrong to own slaves. 
autre temps, autre mœur, as the French put it. Different times, different morals, different customs, different manners. The branch of philosophy called ethics tries to cut through the societal taboos, the customs, the biases, the morality of a given time and scrutinize what is crucially and consequentially good or bad shorn of our prejudices and instincts. For example, many people think it immoral for a brother and sister to cohabit and enjoy sexual relations with each other. But if they're of age and the brother has had a vasectomy, for example, then the one convincing objection, the chance of a malformed or compromised fetus, does not arise. Even less if two sisters or two brothers, or a father and son of consenting age, or mother and daughter of consenting age, had a sexual relationship. For same-sex incest could never produce offspring, impaired or otherwise. What then is the true ethical objection to incest? if the risk of inbreeding can be discounted. And yet our contemporary social and cultural moral antennae may vibrate distressingly if we confronted a real-life example of a father and son living together as lovers, for example. It would surely be wrong to ascribe our objection to a deontic, fixed inner moral law. We would have to ethically unpick our objection and see it for what it is, a taboo, peculiar to our tribe, based on years of tradition, biblical instruction, and social prohibition. In fact, incest is perfectly legal in plenty of Western countries. France, for example, and in America, Rhode Island, D.C., and New Jersey do not outlaw incestuous relations between consenting adults. Only interfamilial marriage itself is prohibited. When we hold a thing wrong, we have to wonder whether we think it wrong because, as in the case of incest, we are so used to the taboo that we cannot shrug it off, or whether we have scrupulously examined the good or bad of an action and its real ethical meaning. But these are actions and behaviours. Can a desire be evil or wrong? I'll return to that in a moment. When I was growing up, the word moral had in truth only one connotation, a sexual one. When somebody was described as having loose morals, being morally lax, immoral, or of loose moral fibre, it was code for what used to be euphemised as libertine propensities. It meant that they were probably living in sin or promiscuous, what we might now call a serial shagger. In our medicalised world of syndrome and disorder, we might now even go so far as to describe them as victims of sex addiction. It is unlikely that we would today, at any rate, use the language of morality to describe sexual promiscuity. In a period as short as my lifetime, a person's morality or moral compass is now more likely to refer to financial impropriety, bullying or bigotry than to behaviour in the bedroom. For the most part, we would say that this is the result of a finer ethical apprehension of the world. Others might argue that we have replaced one set of prejudices, one set of ethical assertions, one moral code with another, no less arbitrary and overbearing. We now believe that suppression, prudery, guilt and shame are more harmful sins than the sin of lust. 
but we cannot know what future generations might think and how harshly they will judge and mock our certainties. Precedent tells us that we can be fairly sure that almost everything we tweet or cheerfully exchange by email or WhatsApp today will be accounted darkly immoral and bestially wrong in the years to come. Hey-ho, twas ever thus. Meanwhile, what of what goes on inside us? We lust. We all lust. We know that this is not the same as love. Love is fine, noble, spiritual, and clean. It is an ideal. It can find expression in sensual, physical acts of union. Of course it can, but it is far from limited to those. The Greeks had different names for different kinds of love. Philia, for friendship and loyalty, as in Anglophile or philanthropy. Storge, for the tenderness and affection felt between children and parents, for example. Agape, spiritual love. And Eros, for sexual, physical love and lust. We get our word erotic from Eros, of course. Never before in our history have we had so much access to free and unapologetically explicit erotic imagery, writing, photography, film, graphics, devices, and soon automata of an android or robotic kind. It is as if the current generations, those born after 1990, say, are the subjects of an enormous experiment whose results we can only guess at. Will the young, brought up in the world of Pornhub and its kin, have a fresher, healthier, easier approach to the erotic in life, less neurosis concerning the sexual side of their natures? One could reason that this should be so. Or will they grow up desensitized, in need of more and more intense, detailed, realistic and extreme imagery. At worst, might it lead to greater impulses to objectify, to take unasked, to molest and rape. Others might reason that this should be so. Only careful research and honest empirical analysis will tell us one way or the other. At the moment, I'm noticing studies that appear to show young people now have less sex than the generations before, whether that's because they're scared of relationships or so burdened by debt or so wanked out by their online jauntings, I can't tell. But I return to the question I just asked. Can a desire be evil or wrong? If a desire, a fantasy played out in the mind, has no consequences, other than perhaps the frustration of being unrequited and unrealized, or being made so public as to be an embarrassment to the object of that desire, then how, you might argue, can it be sinful to lust? We know Jesus said that a sin committed in the head was as bad as one committed in fact, that to look lustfully was as bad as to commit adultery, or as he puts it in the authorized version, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. He had a solution for that. If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Most of us would surely reject such a notion of a thought crime and ask Jesus to get some fresh air and have a word with himself. To us, 
The only likely sin in looking at a woman lustfully would be to do so in such a way that she couldn't help noticing, and which would discomfort or, or threaten her. That would be a crime according to contemporary moral thought and feeling. But to criminalise thinking doesn't fit the consequentialist tenor of our times. How can it be as bad to think of stealing a car, for example, as actually to deprive a person of one? or thinking of punching someone in the face. Surely, as uh, Shakespeare has characters say more than once, thought is free. Of course, we must face the truth that the lust that urges us to engage in pornography as a viewer of content does have consequences. By watching free pornography in particular, you are contributing to a current crisis of dwindling income for porn actors. Do listen to John Ronson's superb podcast series, The Butterfly Effect, to get a sense of this, available where you found this podcast. In the same way that a Coke user is contributing to the violence and corruption in the narco trade, so by using online porn, you are contributing to all the variants of deleterious consequence, blowback and difficulty that are experienced by sex performers around the world. And that, of course, is just adult, consensual pornography. We know of the unspeakable harm done by what seems to be a bewildering and depressing upward trend in child pornography. And those impressed into sexual slavery around the world. You're listening to Stephen Fry's Seven Deadly Sins. I'll be back after a short interval. The jury is still out on the question of whether porn harms the consumer of porn, whether it vitiates their soul, for want of a better phrase, in the same way it used to be thought to vitiate the body, cause blindness, terrors and brain softening and so on. If you're a parent, no matter how broad-minded and contemporary in outlook, what do you do when it first becomes apparent that your beloved baby child is now grown up enough to masturbate? The signs are unmistakable. Under the bed, on the sheets, in the nightstand drawer or bedside table, devices, bottles, tissues, stains, smears. I, I needn't go on. Uh, we, we've all grown out of the Kinsey-era fear of self-abuse as detrimental to the mental health and moral fibre of the masturbator. But surely any parent, no matter how liberated, is bound to wonder and fret just a little. If only I could just check their browsing history. I hope they aren't looking at anything too extreme, too violent, too weird, too out there. Even if you were convinced that they only masturbated to legal and non-violent images and ethically sourced porn, and God help us, there probably are sites and services that can guarantee such a thing, even if you were convinced that no model actor or performer was in any way harmed, distressed, humiliated, or mentally damaged by participating in the scenes your young one watches while playing with her or himself, even then... You would worry, as any parent must, whatever their own lurid sexual history, you would wonder if this jerking off was somehow harmful to the soul and psyche of your child. We can be as logical, rational, objective and intellectually scrupulous as you like, but when it comes to those we love, it is hard not to feel confused, self-contradictory and inconsistent. 
And there are new taboos that are purely of our age, new mores. We are not only frightened of the urges of our own bodies, but the price we pay for making an error in gender politics when trying to understand or even describe those urges is now so high that we find it safer to fall silent. So many things are, quote, not okay, unquote. Do those who have reassigned their gender from male to female have the right to call themselves women? Do men need or feel they need pornography more than women, for example? If so, how much of that is biological and how much acculturated? When men are sexually aroused, there is an obvious, unmistakable physical expression by way of blood rushing to the penis in the form of a hard-on, often with accompanying viscous but fluid pre-cum weeping from the urethra. I am assured that there is a similar complementary oozing or increase in moisture levels in females genital areas. There's an old, hard-arsed businessman's phrase which is silly and irritating, like all business jargon, but which makes a point pithily. Stiff prick knows no pride. It's used as a metaphor, but what it expresses is the obvious but easily forgotten fact that you cannot choose what your body responds to. In films and other cultural media, comedy, horror, and the erotic all share the strange gift or curse of being able to elicit a physical response that comes unbidden. In a comedy, you make loud exhalations and vocalise noises that we call laughter. If you've ever stood at the back of a theatre during a comedy and watched an audience simultaneously lean forward and bark with laughter, you'll know what I mean. It's a remarkable sight. Actually, I, I knew someone who worked at the Savoy Theatre in London when Michael Frayn's Noises Off was playing, and she told me that every night there would be plenty of urine-soaked seats to be dealt with. So the physical response to comedy can go beyond laughter. You really can wet yourself. The same results could be monitored during the screening of a horror film. The audience screams, gasps, gulps, cries, or does a squirt when the mad murderer leaps out of the wardrobe. And when it comes to erotic cinema, you don't need me to remind you that willies and clits shift, quiver and stiffen, areas juice up, breathing alters, pulses quicken, etc., etc., I am frank about the physicality here because I want almost to tickle you, and not into arousal, but into its opposite state, into wrinkle-nosed outrage, distaste, shock, annoyance. Why do we get so disturbed, embarrassed, shamed, cross, prurient, prudish about genital matters? Why? It makes no sense. Let's call upon that alien species so useful in debate, the Martians. There they are, looking down on our planet and our goings-on. And what do they see? On one side, they see shameful daily examples from our species of torture, cruelty, deceit, abuse, violence, murder and destruction. On the other side, they observe that nature has granted us earthlings, for the purposes of our procreation and recreation, a, a marvellous set of sensations that arise from flirting and fondling, sliding and writhing, caressing and messing, stroking and poking, spurting and squirting. They give us blissful quantities of endorphin-fed joy and satisfaction, and the result can be 
babies. It's a wholly good and wonderful system, our Martian would think. They are astonished, however, when they focus in more closely and start, like good alien sociologists, to make notes of our language and its rules, customs and taboos. They are baffled to discover that to us, words that refer to this marvellous slippery bodily stroking and poking are outlawed, banned, taboo. The same with any words that describe the excrement, the essential expulsion of the non-nutritive elements of the food that sustains us. Vital to our existence as they are, we forbid their use in polite company. Fuck, shit, wank, tits, arse, cunt, cock, dick, piss, cum, pussy, jerk off, etc., etc., etc. Absolutely not. But humankind can happily say, Sorry I'm late, the traffic was murder. How killingly funny! Oh, such a cruel wait for my results, it was torture. How can this be? wonders the Martian, shaking his little green head. Murder, killing, cruelty and torture are terrible things. What's wrong with cocks, cunts and cum, for heaven's sake? It makes no sense. Well, we can all think about how this has come to pass in our long history. We compliment ourselves that we are thinking, sapient beings with reason and moral compasses and the ability to sift and wean ethical issues, that we have somehow lifted ourselves up from the base and the bestial. Yet we cannot but recognise that no matter how clever our language, culture and social structuring, no matter how finely tuned our faculties of aesthetics and reason, we remain in our depths violently boiling cauldrons of chaotic hormones and wild animal urges that cause us shame no matter how much we rationalise them. Everything that we deem animal in us perfectly natural hominid primate mammals as we are, knocks us off the golden Apollonian perches that we falsely believe ourselves fitted for. Defecation and sex are especially troubling to our self-image. Defecation we can forgive as long as its sights and smells are cunningly hidden and sluiced away. We know that everyone, from the Queen to Tom Cruise, has to poo... Lust we find harder to systematise into special rooms, porcelain and plumbing. Like pooing, lust becomes the subject of jokes, sniggers and giggles, and as with pooing, any public manifestation can become a matter of instant humiliation. The juices from which we are composed are always to be hidden. But we know our bugbears, fetishes and taboos on this subject go back a long, long time and that few, if any, human societies are entirely free from them. The question is not, are we all subject to irrational shame, but whether the taboos under which we live have a point. Do they express the wisdom of the collective unconscious that recognises lust to be harmful to the individual and its group? Daniel Defoe, author of Robinson Crusoe, of course, wrote this famous verse. Loose thoughts, at first, like subterranean fires, burn inward, smothering with unchaste desires, but getting vent to rage and fury turn, burst in volcanoes, and like Etna burn. 
The heat increases as the flames aspire and turns the solid hills to liquid fire. So sensual flames, when raging in the soul, first vitiate all the parts, then fire the whole, burn up the bright, the beauteous, the sublime, and turn our lawful pleasures into crime. We could say today, or at least most of us in the West probably would, that for us the only conditions under which pleasures can be turned into crimes would be when consent is not sought or given. Children are clearly not competent to consent, nor for that matter are animals, those with severe mental or cognitive impairment, nor those whose competence to consent is compromised by spiked drinks and the like. Otherwise, these days the law brightly does not interfere in carnal matters, and the public's long, wrinkled, hypocritically disapproving nose is barred from the bedroom. Adultery is no longer a crime. The word fornication has no meaning in our age. But that is not to say that in our free world of free love, we're not made painfully aware that there can often be a heavy price to be paid for being light with love. Those who play away from home, who cheat on or deceive the one to whom they have bound themselves, will know how heavy that price can be. Every morning to wake up with a feeling like hot lead leaking into the stomach as one surveys the disaster one has made of one's own and others' lives. The anger, the pain, the humiliating squabbling details. Who's going to pick the children up from ballet and taekwondo? Who's getting the house and the car? The distressing burden placed on the loyalty of friends. Why couldn't I keep my cock in my trousers? Why couldn't I keep my legs closed? What was I thinking of? No wonder we assigned slimy, slithery demons to represent our most destructive and self-destructive actions. As Puck rightly observed, Lord, what fools these mortals be! Incidentally, when I said that all the pleasure was given us for the purposes of procreation and recreation, you might have thought, no, Stephen, procreation only. As an old gayer, you may like to believe it's all for the purpose of recreation, but let's be honest, it's for reproduction, not for lustful delight. Well, yeah, it's like saying food and drink is only for sustenance. Cuisine, baking, wine, all those are not why we have food. Sex and sustenance are the necessities that make life possible. But the paradox of living is surely that it is the extras, fine food and pleasurable sex, that make life livable. Food ends up in the toilet bowl and lust writes its crude messages on the bedsheets, and our juices betray our real selves. Which reminds me to tell you an only slightly relevant joke. I can't help myself. So, as you have to begin every joke, so President Trump, right, was woken up by staffers and security one, one cold February morning, not long ago, in fact it was this year, out on the snowy south lawn of the White House, was written in large, clear letters, Donald Trump is an asshole. When Trump looked out the window and saw this, he was furious and sent for his security staff, and they had disturbing news. Sir, if you look closely, you can see that the letters are yellow. That message was, in fact, pissed into the snow. What? Yes, sir. 
and test results just in show that the urine is that of the vice president. Oh, no. Not Mike Pence. Mike hates me. I can't do it, Donald Trump, you might have noticed. Sir, it's worse than that. How can it be worse than that? The Veep has pissed a nasty, nasty message about me into the snow. Yes, sir. But we have determined that the handwriting is Melania's. Yeah, you got it. Whether you laughed at it or not, it's worth ending with the thought that of all the sins, old and new, lust also happens to be the one that we find the funniest. As children, it's poo and wee-wees and bums and willies that send us into delirious giggling, of course, but that's just standing in for what will become the great subject for humour for the rest of our lives, our sexual natures. The gap between the often pompous, self-regarding and upright citizen and the surging chemicals and roaring hormones inside them, the disconnect between what they say and what their sexual organs make them feel and do is so enormous that only laughter can bridge it. Also amusing, as the porter in Shakespeare's Macbeth and T.S. Eliot noted in their own ways, is how between the desire and the performance there falls a shadow. Viagra and Cialis are there to help men overcome this. They have transformed the porn industry, as you can imagine. Anyone can perform in front of the camera now. The producers no longer rely on unusually gifted actors who can always get wood. But technology, while increasing our access to sexual material exponentially, has also increased our vulnerability to exposure. Stories of behaviour, celebrity comics getting their cocks out and jerking off without having been asked to, actresses and politicians having their private photo collections hacked, rumours, revelations, revenge porn. In the field of sex, there are planted many, many landmines. And as with all the deadly sins, this change in our moral outlook, our ethical standards, the undreamt-of technical access to sexual material, the medical solutions to impotence, to impregnation and to disease protection have all arrived at once and made the path from lustful thought to lustful action as well lubricated in every sense as possible, but with no concomitant set of rules to guide, limit, or direct our actions. However harsh, arbitrary, unfair, puritanical, and despotic we may think the moral outlook may have been in the past, it did at least give us very well-established codes of behaviour, etiquette, and manners. These were followed, doubtless, reluctantly, resentfully, and fearfully, but they did at least give a clear structure and direction to our lives. These days, we're all playing tennis without a net, Without a service court, without tram lines, without a baseline, umpires or line judges, but in front of a bigger crowd of jeering, hooting, mocking spectators than ever before. Everything we do is public. No wonder we're all so bloody angst-ridden. Freedom is wonderful. Of course it is. But like all animals born into and entirely habituated to captivity, when the cage door opens and the wide spaces of lawlessness, independence, and freedom beckon, many of us turn round and crawl shyly back into the cage. It's the only home we've known. It's safe there. We know our bounds. It's cramped and confining, but it's what we know. 
The unregulated wilds are just too frightening. If we can only snuggle into the straw and play privately with ourselves, everything will be fine. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you all have plenty of water-soluble, guilt-free, stain-free fun until we meet again to look at envy. Don't forget to tweet me, at Stephen Fry, with the hashtag Seven Deadly Sins, the seven as a number, if you'd like to contribute thoughts for the final wrap-up podisode. You've been listening to Stephen Fry's Seven Deadly Sins. Grateful thanks to our composer, Guy Farley. The show is produced by Andrew Sampson and Norman Goodman. Additional episode information can be found at stephenfry.com slash bananaskins. This has been a Sam Fry Limited production.